All right. We see Jesus, Hebrews 2020, increment 84. And we'll go to Hebrews 3.12 to start with, and then fan out a bit. Today we're on Overwatch. So, Father, we thank you that you are the overseer of the flock, that your son Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep, And we pray that his care and solicitude for the sheep will be in us so that we can care for one another and be aware of one another's concerns and not just our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any one of you. Please notice that little phrase, that turn of phrase. In any one of you, an evil heart of unbelief that withdraws from the living God. Now, before we've introduced a theory that I think has some merit to it, that withdrawing from the living God for them may have been, in fact, reverting to the performance of sacrifices, animal sacrifices, as if Jesus Christ had not made the once and for all, for all time and forever, self-sacrifice for sin. But that's not our main subject today. This phrase, so that there won't be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief, is something I want to emphasize Now notice the very next verse, Hebrews 3.13. And oddly, as we come to the end of the year 2020, many people are saying, thank God. We are coming to the end of a year that we dubbed or named the year of today, last December 29th for this year, the year of today. Oddly enough, look what we have in Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another every day as long as it is called today. So that means 2021 will still be today. In fact, Jesus Christ will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. But encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. In order that none of you, please notice that, in any one of you in 312, now none of you, not one of you, will be hardened By the deceitfulness of sin. Why is sin deceitful? Because it looks good. And it appears as a good. Something that is going to be good for you. As in Eve's case, when she looked at the fruit of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she saw that it was something that could make her wise, the deceitfulness of sin. There's a suggestion here of the personification of sin. I've read commentators once again that said that Paul personifies sin, and he does very clearly in Romans and Galatians especially, but the Hebrew writer doesn't. And I take umbrage with that because there's a suggestion here of sin being personified because a an object An inanimate object isn't deceitful. There's a suggestion here of the personification of sin as we have it in Paul's epistles to the Romans and Galatians. Here, the deceptiveness of sin. Now we're doing a theological exegesis, so what is the study? Homardiology, the study of sin. Here, the deceptiveness of sin is specifically regarding a heart that does not trust God to take care of them in a hostile, social, political, and religious environment. Again, I'll say this. A heart that does not trust God to take care of us in a hostile, social, political, and religious environment. The deceptiveness is found in the reversion to practices which are abrogated by the finished work of Christ in order to avoid the stigma of identifying with Jesus. 
Now, the, the world loves its own. China loves its collaborators. Germany, Nazi Germany, loved its collaborators in other countries. China, Communist Party of China, CCP, loves its American collaborators. The world, the cosmos, the devil's own system coddles those that are under it. So if you're going to compromise your faith, the world will coddle you. If you're going to persist in faith in Jesus Christ against the world's wishes, you will not be coddled or cuddled or snuggled. You will be persecuted. All who will live godly will endure persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. There's no exceptions to that, ever. The persecution might take on a subtle psychological exclusion in the workplace or gossip or slander or maligning, or it may take on more official political and religious and civil penalties, as it was in this case, in Hebrews. But in any case, the deceptiveness of sin is found in the reversion to practices which seem to bring you under the protection of the world. It's deceptive because it takes on the aura, the aura of the angel of light and not of God, the aura of something intelligent and reasonable given the situation at hand. But reverting to those practices in reality in their time is a continuity in sin. Not, repeat, not because Judaism is evil or Jews are bad, but because the readers of this homily have received the knowledge of the truth that no other sacrifice can be offered to take away sin and therefore, to go back to those sacrifices is, in Hebrews 10.26, to go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, the truth that's embodied in Jesus and in his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice, which God the Father was so impressed with that he resurrected Jesus from the dead, elevated him to his own right side, in the highest heavens. How impressed with it are you? This same kind of exhortation that we see in Hebrews 3.12 to 13 is found in Hebrews 4.1. We looked at this a little bit back in increment 83, all the way back then. And so Hebrews 3.12-3 to 3 is found again, in a way, in Hebrews 4.1, in an integral connection with entering into God's rest. That's a theme that isn't over in 3.11. It goes all the way to 4.11, in fact. But in Hebrews 4.1, and I emphasized this last time, but it bears repetition, Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest... Let us fear. Here's one time where fear is right on, where you got to have it. It means to be aroused to a state of alertness to a real danger. This isn't talking about pathological fear or cowardice or neurotic fear or phobias. This is talking about concern about a real danger, an intense concern. So, for example, we're in a pandemic. Most people don't die from it. Most people don't even suffer that much from it. But some people die from it. So anyone that has a brain or an ounce of love and concern for others that might be in their periphery, they are careful in a pandemic because of concern for others. And so their fear is that they might somehow pass on something harmful to others. The point is well taken here. The fear that he requires is lest any one of you, look at that word again, any one of you 
think that he has come too late to enter it. It's a very difficult thing to translate, but I think it's right here. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, you say, well, wait a minute. It says they will never enter into my rest. But here it says the promise remains to enter into rest, meaning that no one's ever going to enter into God's rest with unbelief, but after a conversion to faith, they will enter into rest. Therefore, while the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us fear or be aroused to a state of alertness to a real danger, lest any one of you think he has come too late to enter it. The problem is on the levels of consciousness. The problem is in the thinking. If one of us thinks that it's too late for him or her to enter God's rest, then we should assure that person of the contrary. It's not too late for you, but you don't know how much I've failed. You don't know how much I've sinned. You don't know how much I've renounced my faith to be popular with my friends. You don't know how much I've done this or done that or omitted this or committed this. It's not too late to enter God's rest. The failure of the majority of the desert generation of the sons and daughters of Jacob, also known as Israel, to enter into the land is symbolic. The main idea is that there remains a rest, a Sabbath, as it's put later on, for the people of God to enter. And it's not too late for anyone, despite the depth and frequency of past failure. It's too late for me is an unacceptable excuse. It's an evil rationalization, as Jesus put it in Mark seven twenty one to 22, that comes out of a heart that's evil of, evilly affected by unbelief. Failing to come to this judgment, failing to come to the judgment or the conclusion regarding the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, which I've been developing from this pulpit since about 2010, and it's been building and building up for about 10 years, more earnestly in 2013 and then 15 and 18, 19, now 20. Failure to come to a judgment regarding the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the fact that, for example, he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And for example, that on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself. The failure to come to this judgment in accordance with the scripture is the failure to appropriate the grace that strengthens the heart and fortifies it against infection with a root of bitterness, which can spring up from a graceless heart and contaminate many. We can prevent the root of bitterness by allowing people to appropriate grace, to say it's not too late for you, and God's grace is still extended to you. For the failure to appropriate grace leads to a bitter, toxic root in the soul. And in the heart, it springs up and many are defiled. We take care to help the one. And by doing so, we prevent problems for the many. Jesus spoke of the shepherd leaving the 99, going after the one, the one, the one. Here we're dealing with the one. Lest there be an evil heart of unbelief in any one of you. Lest any of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, lest any one of you think it's too late for you. The danger is of an epidemic or even a pandemic of unbelief here. And so we're on guard. We're on overwatch. Deep in Hebrews, all the way to Hebrews 12, notice this, 12.15 of Hebrews. See, we're fanning out in this message, in our last one, to cover a lot of Hebrews. Be on overwatch, is how I would translate this, and I think correctly. 
that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up contaminating many, that there is no immoral or profane person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. All of these verses enjoin or urge a concern not just for oneself, but for others. God's intention, as I said in the last message so long ago, God's intention is for a community with hearts established in grace. God's intention, I said, is for a community with hearts established in grace. Such people are free to eat from an altar that the Levitical priests do not have the freedom to eat from, as we learned in Hebrews 13.10. There is an altar that we eat from, as there is a rest for the people of God that is not of this creation, a land that we enter that is not of this creation, a tabernacle that we serve that is not of this creation in Hebrews 9.11, not even of this evil age in Galatians 1.4. The altar in Hebrews 13.10 has to do with the finished work of Christ and his once and for all sacrifice. I say once and for all because it was for all. He is the propitiation for all the world, the sins of all the world. I also say that his, it's once and for all because it was unrepeatable. It's an unrepeatable sacrifice and it is for all people for all time. The rest, katapausis, that's used here, the word, the key word here is in Hebrews 3, really from 7 to 4.13, is kata. Pausis, K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S, katapausis, and it means rest, but it also means inheritance. It has a double meaning of inheritance and rest, and we'll be fanning that doctrine out throughout our study of Hebrews, Lord willing. And so, the rest is an eschatological and everlasting Sabbath celebration. I say celebration, and you see the celebratory nature of it in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. It is an everlasting Sabbath which is to be universal, but which can even now be entered and celebrated. Though then, after the second appearing of Christ, we will celebrate it completely and forever as we enter into God's rest. That's when, what is God's rest? It's when God is all and in all. It's when God will be all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God will be resting in all and all will be resting in God. But it will be an endless celebration of Sabbath as hinted in Hebrew, in, rather in Isaiah 58:13, when all will call the Sabbath a delight, when everyone will call the Sabbath a delight, Isaiah 58:13. The concern in Hebrews is pastoral. It's the concern of the shepherd, the pastor teacher, the poimen didaskalos as Ephesians 4.11 puts it. The pastoral concern fans out and is intended to fan out into many. The final picture for a local church isn't one pastor, many sheep. It's the pastoral inclination in all of us together. It's to fan out. The pastoral concern fans out into many, hopefully, ultimately, into all the members in a healthy congregation. We should all be on overwatch for one another. Now, to deploy a military analogy, overwatch is the function of a sniper and his spotter. The sniper's job is not just to find certain targets and take them out. It's to watch over others in his unit who are conducting a mission, for example, 
a sniper and his spotter may act as overwatch for a recon mission, a reconnaissance mission, or on a rescue mission. The sniper and his spotter watch over the troops on the mission and take out any hostiles unseen by the recon team, but seen by the sniper. They take out hostiles who may kill them or otherwise endanger them and ruin the mission. That's what Overwatch is in the military analogy. This is merely an analogy. We're on Overwatch for one another, not with a 308 on a rooftop or in a ghillie suit, ghillie suit on a knoll. Rather, we have on all the armor of God and are watching out that our brothers and sisters are not overtaken by a wrong thought leading to a destructive or self-destructive intent. A thought, after all, can make or break you. If the thought is a supposition that someone has by which they think they're going to be left behind and there's no hope for them, or that they have failed God and people to the point where they are permanently excluded from God's blessedness, and salvation, then that thought isn't making them, it's breaking them. It's making them fail the grace of God. Fail to appropriate it now. That's what this is about. Now, if my volume seems to be up and I seem to be hollering sometimes, it's because I'm just excited about or passionate about these messages. This one and the one before, and well, really all of them in one way or another. Now, there's a whole series of fictional Christian, air quotes, Christian novels called the Left Behind series. People are being made to fear that they'll be left behind, or their parents will, or their children will, or their cousins will, or their boozing uncle will, left behind to experience the great tribulation, left behind after Jesus comes to rapture faithful Christians and rescue them. Let me tell you something about the left behind series. We should rather be concerned that Christians even think that way. Now, all of this relates to the fifth level of intentional human consciousness. Now, that would sound like I was showing off and being pedantic and philosophical and a stuffed shirt if we hadn't already studied and given definition to these terms. All of this relates to the fifth level of intentional human consciousness. That is simply where we are conscious interpersonally between persons on an intersubjective level and a subject is simply an acting thinking and tending subject the fifth level of consciousness to put it bluntly is when you're aware of other people sometimes we come together and we say I was just thinking this morning of this scripture and someone will say wow so was I that's intersubjectivity yes it's the unity of the spirit but it's also because you may be part of a community that is intersubjectively in love and has love for one another and love for the world. And the Holy Spirit is teaching us together. It's intersubjectivity. It's interpersonal, human, rational, intentional consciousness. All of that I'm talking about now has to do with the fifth level of intentional human consciousness. That's the interpersonal and intersubjective level. Because this is the level where the deliberation, choice, and actions of the fourth level are sublated by love. On the fourth level, we deliberate after having made judgments and conclusions. Deliberation results in actions. On the fifth level, that deliberation and those actions are sublated or integrated into love. They become acts of love empowered by the Holy Spirit in the Christian case. 
So this is the level, the fifth level, where deliberation, choice, and actions on the fourth level are sublated by love. And then, listen very carefully to this development of doctrine. This is where we show concern for one another and not just for ourselves. In this connection, Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Mark it down in your brain. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Even 1 to 5, actually, but if you wanted to be go crazy, you could go 2, 1 to 13, and then through 14, then 16. But we're not going to go crazy because then you'd have to go to 17, then 3, 1, all the way to 4, 18. You know, forget it. But Philippians 2, 1 to 4 is extremely pertinent to this passage. I'm, I've done a translation of it with a little bit of bracketed commentary. It says, if there is any encouragement. The word there is a key word for all of Hebrews, in fact. If there is any encouragement, that's paraklesis. Paraklesis is P-A-R-A. K-L, long E-S-I-S, A to E-S-I-S, paraklesis. And we find that in Hebrews 13.22. Also, the whole book of Hebrews, as we call it, the whole homily is called a word of paraklesis. It's a word of encouragement. Paul says, if there is any encouragement, what he means is, if there's any encouragement you can give to me. I've been encouraging you all through these years and in this epistle. So he's, he's saying, in effect, if there's any encouragement in Christ, in Christo, in Christ, if any consolation, if any spiritual communion, if any affection and compassion that you can show me, is what he's saying. You want to show me compassion? You want to show me consolation? You want to show me encouragement? You want to give me encouragement? Then verse 2, he says, Then make my joy full. Go ahead. Make my joy. Go ahead. <laughs> make my joy full by thinking the same way. That doesn't mean thinking the same thing all the time in a uniformity. It just means that we, our thoughts in the fifth level of consciousness are thoughts that intend love. Let Make my joy full by thinking the same way, having the same self-forgetting love, Being in intersubjective harmony, that's exoteric harmony. I'll give further definition to that down the road, hopefully, and have in the past. Again, this is an expanded translation. Make my joy full by thinking the same way, having the same self-forgetting love, being in intersubjective harmony, intent on one thing. You compare that with Philippians 3.13 to 14. That one thing is forgetting those things that are behind and pressing on toward the mark of the prize of the upward summons of God in Christ Jesus, which in turn relates to the heavenly calling, a calling to let Jerusalem come into your mind, the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 3, please notice that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, nor out of empty conceit. Instead, with modest humility, consider one another to be better than yourselves. Wow. That's revolutionary talk there. That's extraordinary talk for our time. Consider one another to be better than yourselves. What? In an era where television, news, social media, conversations everywhere, the suggestion is being made, I am better than you. I am better than you. They don't say it overtly, but they sure say it by actions, by touchdown dances, by stupid things that people say on Facebook. It's all a suggestion by showing yourself to be better than others, a suggestion, I am better than you. What Paul here says is revolutionary. Consider one another to be better than yourselves. 
Look out. Here's verse 4. Look out. Here's the overwatch. Look out for each other's best interests and not just your own. And I love how 2.5 sums it up. Let the mentality and intentionality be in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. It's kind of a strange way to say it, but you have available to you the intentionality and mentality of Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you have available to you his own thinking, his own intention, his own intentionality toward obedience and love. Let it be in you. Now, this may contain the best description of the true intersubjectivity on the fifth level of consciousness. I'll say that again. Philippians 2, 1 to 5 may contain the best description in all the scriptures of true intersubjectivity on the fifth level of consciousness. This intersubjectivity is, in a word, love. One thing that can always be done in love to counter the movement away from God is a thing called paraclesis. Encourage one another daily while it's called today. Paraclesis. Both the noun and the verb parakaleo of this concept are found in Hebrews 13.22 where the PT in closing says, I urge parakaleo, which is the verbal form, P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E omega O, I urge parakaleo, notice that, you brothers and sisters to accept this word of encouragement, to lagutes paraklesios, to accept this, I urge, urge you to accept this word of encouragement. I encourage you to, encourage, to accept this word of encouragement as valid, he says, for I've written a short letter to you. Hebrews is a short letter. Back in the day when letter writing was an art, this is a short letter, a brief letter. That, you know what that means? Because Hebrews is a short letter, he leaves it up to pastor teachers of his future to fan it out. Guess what we're doing? Just that. The words paraklesis and the verb parakaleo are significant in the whole of the New Testament, in fact, so much so that it is a name for the Holy Spirit. His name is is haparakletos. There's, that's found in, by the way, John 14, 26. Jesus called him that. The longer term for parakletos, I like to call it, is the imparter of incentive. There's no room for confusion of the identity of parakletos. Jesus says, the imparter of incentive, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. In John 14, 16, he's called another, another parakletos, another imparter of incentive, which means that Jesus himself has been the divinely sent imparter of incentive for them up until then. I will send you another advocate, imparter of incentive, comforter, helper, however you want to translate it. I like imparter of incentive, both negative and positive incentive. What is happening throughout Hebrews? An impartation of incentive, negative and positive. Imparter of incentive is a somewhat elongated term for what translators have translated, and you can look at various English translations, variously as helper, comforter, counselor, advocate, paraclete, which is the anglicization of the word paraclete. Other acceptable translations might be energizer, mentor, or even the informal title coach might apply. In any case, Jesus promises that this person will be with his disciples forever. 
through the age and then beyond into the ages to come. John 14:16 compared with Mark rather Matthew 28:20. 20. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of Jesus with us also also. You can chew on that for a while. Matthew 28:20, 20, Hebrews 13:5. Don't be overcome by avarice or the desire for money. For has he not said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? And he's called our helper in verse 6 of Hebrews 13. In any case, Jesus promises that this person will be with you forever. The two divine missions are in view here. The divine sending of the Son and the divine sending of the Spirit into this world. In both divine missions, the sent one is a parakletos, a, an imparter of encouragement, profound encouragement, we could say. In terms of advocacy, which is another term for paraklesis, or intercessory function, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us in Romans 8, 26 to 27. And Jesus Christ is called the righteous one who is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. But he's also called right in that same passage, our parakletos, 1 John 2, 1. Our advocate. He is our advocate with the Father for us when we sin. If anyone sins, let him know or let her know that he or she has an advocate with the Father. You get a good picture of this when Jesus was at a dinner party and a woman who came in who was reputed to have sinned much came in and the Pharisees and other pious types at the dinner party were judging her. Luke 7, 36 to 47, Jesus said she loved much and she's forgiven much. She's forgiven much, and she loves much. She sinned much, yes. She loves much. Nobody else in this dinner party met me at the door and washed my feet and cried on my feet and wiped the tears with her hair. But she did. He's an advocate. She sinned much. She's forgiven much. She loves much. Again, Let's back up a little bit, not into destruction, but into the doctrine we've been developing. So that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Here, I argue that sin is personified because sin is described as being deceitful. Its deceit is the subject of a verb, scleruno which means to harden. It's related to sclerosis in our English language, such as arteriosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. Here's the hardening of the heart. Sin is deceitful, and its subject, it's the subject of a verb. What it does is it hardens people. Hebrews 3.13. You can also see it in 3.8, 3.15, for this verb, as well as Acts 19.9, where hardening themselves is related to refusal to listen. And it's tied together with Romans 9.18, where God is said to harden whom he will and show mercy to whom he wills. God has actually hardened certain people in history to get his purpose done. Hopefully, you understand that he also shows mercy to whom he will, and he shows mercy to all Ultimately, Romans eleven thirty-two. I think that's the hallmark verse of all of Hebrew, of all of Romans. Incidentally, thankfully, in the final analysis, once again, God shows saving mercy to all of humanity in all of its times because of the saving work of Christ on the cross. That's how you come to conclusions like: Is Jesus really? one with saving significance, and is that saving significance universal? And is the impact of his cross efficacious, not 95% like some vaccines, but 100% in all cases? 
Hebrews 12, 15 to 16, once again then says, be on overwatch. See how it works? Be on, this isn't just to pastors. This is a pastor talking to all the congregation. The pastoral concern is meant to fan out into all the hearts of a congregation, a healthy congregation. Be on overwatch so that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up contaminating many. That there is no immoral or profane person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, people like to use Esau as an example of a guy who went to hell. He didn't go to hell. In fact, we see later, after this failure, we see the face of God shining in his own face later on in Genesis. So Esau was only a negative trend kind of example here a negative trend example at a certain part of his life, not at the end of his life. So this overwatch is not just for shepherd teachers, though they are certainly included because they watch over souls, as Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, as those who must give an account. They're like shepherds who have to count the sheep and get all the sheep back into the fold at the end of the day, and they have to report to the owner of the sheep. This command is addressed to one and all in the house of God, lest there be anyone who fails to appropriate the grace of God. We find a brother or a sister who is down. It's reflected in their countenance. They're usually up or uplifted. They're down. You find out why they're down. You encourage them. We have to do this daily. We all get to places of exhaustion. I've been there more times than I can count. Exhaustion and weariness and then sometimes into kind of a depressed mood or a a suppressed kind of hope. Your hope is suppressed and someone may just encourage you just with a word or a single word, sometimes even just a look and it builds you up. Now, a root of bitterness is a deep problem. There are entire organizations with deep group biases that have sprung up from toxic roots of bitterness. Their ideology itself, in many cases, is a root of bitterness. There are anti-Semitic organizations, and they are in group bias. Their ideology is not just a written ideology. It's a root of bitterness and bitter bias. We're all called to be on overwatch, and the word is episcopeo, where we get the word episcopal, but it means to oversee or overwatch. We're all to be on overwatch, lest there be anyone who falls short of the grace of God. So many times you might think of someone by name. I wonder how they are. We pray. We ask somebody else, how is so-and-so? And we pray. Oh, they're going through a difficult time now. We pray. Or they're considering blowing off the faith or whatever. We pray for them. We contact them somehow. Or we contact God on their behalf. Falling short of the grace of God means failure to appropriate grace from the throne of grace. And therefore, it leads so often to bitterness. It's too late for me, so I'm going to be bitter. And the bitterness contaminates other people and so grace is appropriated by faith just as mercy is dispensed even to unbelief evoking faith in Galatians falling away or speaking in a nautical metaphor drifting off course from grace as Galatians 5 4 calls it that occurs when men in the churches of Galatia submitted to circumcision under pressure from menacing missionaries who oppose Paul's gospel, which is God's gospel of grace, God's grace. There's a connection between departure from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief and the failure to appropriate grace. I'll say that again. There's a connection between departure from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief and the failure to appropriate grace. God, that's 3.12 of Hebrews and 12.15 of Hebrews. God's intention is for a community of believers whose hearts collectively are under the governance of God's grace and who live in an intersubjectivity 
dominated by love. Now, in closing, we're moving here in a theological subject called ecclesiology now. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. So we've moved from homardiology to ecclesiology, the study of the church. Again, in Hebrews 13, 9 and 10, I put more of a formal translation together for that. Don't be carried away by deceitful and strange doctrines. It's good for the heart to be established in grace, not by foods which have never benefited their devotees. We have an altar from which those who serve the earthly tabernacle have no right to eat. Again, the promise here, in the context of the promise of restoration for Israel and Judah, Jeremiah 30.20, this is a verse that keeps popping up in my brain and began to do so about 38 years ago. It's Jeremiah 30 in verse 20. It's the Septuagint of Jeremiah 37.20. It says this, And their sons and daughters will go in as they did before, and their testimonies will be set straight before me. And I will visit those who oppress them. This promise is one that I think we should appropriate for ourselves. And every local church should. This promise is for a community that's established before God in grace and in his presence. The use of episkeptomai here in the Septuagint of Jeremiah 37.20 is what God intends to do to the oppressors is very interesting. The word to visit. I'm going to visit your oppressors. That's interesting in the Greek text because this verb is used especially when it's performed by God as the acting subject. That's, that word means to visit with the purpose and intention of bringing salvation or some kind of aid or comfort. We've already seen it in Septuagint of Psalm 8.5, quoted in Hebrews 2.6. We've seen it in Luke 1.68. God visits from on high to bring salvation. John, and also in Luke 1.78. Matthew 25.36, where it talks about visiting someone with the intention of good. Acts 7.23, 15.14, 15.36, James 1.27. God truly intends to have saving mercy on all, including both victims and perpetrators of oppression. The victims of oppression receive justice. The perpetrators of oppression receive righteousness. They have, re they have not had righteousness. They have lacked it, so God rectifies them in an act of justification. So God gives justice to the victims of oppression and visits the oppressor to rectify the oppressor. So everybody receives salvation, though it's delivered, as it were, in a different way on oppressors as well as the oppressed. I like to call it vics and perps. Perpetrators and victims both receive from God saving mercy, but it's delivered in a different way on perpetrators than it is on victims. The victims receive the justice they lack. The perpetrators receive the righteousness they lack. And that involves some things that we don't want to talk about right now, but they will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews 13.9 then, and Jeremiah 30.20 reveal God's will for a congregation established in grace. A variation on that word episkeptomai that we just talked about, episcopeo to visit, is deployed in Hebrews 12.15, specifying that there is a collective responsibility of communal discernment to go with the intentionality of love, Philippians 1.9, and the advantage of understanding in the members of the community or the assembly. In other words, communal discernment goes with the intentionality of love 
and the advantage of understanding. Discernment isn't so that you can find out some evil motive in a Christian and then advertise it to people, slander them. It's discernment so that you can go to them having brought, pulled the log out of your own eye to pull the moat out of their eye privately. And so, in closing, an effective church is a solidarity of hearts established by grace. Hebrews 13, 9 and 10, compared with Jeremiah 30, 20, LXX 37, 20, Septuagint of 37, 20 of Jeremiah, should be descriptive of any local church. It should be descriptive, for example, of that which I call Tetelestai Phalanx, our local church. While we are in the habit of meeting together physically, and especially when we're physically separated, we should be a solidarity of hearts established in grace, especially when we are separated physically. That's when we learn of the supreme importance of unseen and eternal realities. Most of all, the reality that is Jesus, whom we see, not with physical eyes yet, but with the eyes of our heart. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity once again to receive encouragement from your word and to continue in a hopefully very profitable exegesis of this wonderful homily. It was written not only for those in the first century of the church, but we're finding out to our great joy and delight written for us in the 21st century as well. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.